Hey ladies, welcome to the Looking Above podcast. It's easy to get bogged down in details of everyday life. If we aren't intentional, our eyes can easily be pulled away from the Lord and we can set our gaze on things of earth. 2 Corinthians 4.18 says, So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. My name is Karen Boffman and I'm the women's pastor at New Life Church in Gillette, Wyoming. I believe that our perspective changes everything. So together, we'll be looking above. Welcome back to Looking Above. I'm Karen, and I'm so excited to jump into John chapters 9 and 10 with you today. These are two of my favorite chapters to study and discuss. I don't want to waste any time, so let's dive right in. John chapter 9. Uh, Jesus and his disciples were walking along the road, and they passed a man who had been blind since birth. The disciples ask Jesus why the man was born blind. It was a common belief at this time that physical ailments were linked to sin. Jesus corrects them and says that's not the reason that he is blind. He instead says that the blindness was an opportunity for God's power and glory to be displayed. So let's take a look at verse 4. We must quickly carry out the tasks assigned to us by the one who sent us. The night is coming, and then no one can work. But while I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus is using figurative language of light or day versus night or darkness. And he's referring to the time while he was on earth as day versus the time when he would leave and go to heaven being night. He knew that his time was limited, and he needed to complete the work the Father had given him to do. This is an admonition to us as well. We're only given so much time on earth. None of us knows which day will be our last. It's really easy to fall into the trap of looking around and getting distracted by worldly day-to-day things. But as we learn to look above, We set our focus on accomplishing the things that we've been called by God to do. If you're meeting with a small group this week, I think it would be really beneficial to discuss what you personally have been called to do and what things are distracting you from accomplishing what God has asked of you. Verse 6, Then he spit on the ground, made mud with the saliva, and spread the mud over the blind man's eyes. Okay, immediately some of us are grossed out, and we might miss the more important points of the story. So let me explain. Culturally, it was believed that spit had medicinal properties, and that the spit of a distinguished person was curative. Jesus didn't need to spit to perform the miracle, obviously, but he used spit because it was the common practice and it would have gained the trust of the blind man. He was a wise physician. He did what the patient would expect a doctor to do. Verse 7, he told him, go wash yourself in the pool of Siloam. Siloam means scent. So the man went away and washed and came back seeing. His neighbors and others who knew him as the blind beggar asked each other, isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? Some said he was, and others said, no, he just looks like him. But the beggar kept saying, yes, I am the same one. 
They asked, who healed you? What happened? He told them, the man they called Jesus made mud and spread it over my eyes and told me, go to the pool of Siloam and wash yourself. So I went and washed, and now I can see. Now, the man trusted Jesus, so he did as Jesus instructed. He went, he washed the mud from his eyes, and he was healed. And the people who knew him thought, this is too good to be true. They didn't believe that it was him. They thought maybe it was just another sighted man who just happened to look like the blind guy that they had walked past on the street each day. So these people take the blind beggar to the Pharisees, the leaders of the Jewish faith, because it just so happened that this healing took place, wouldn't you guess it, again on a Sabbath day. And the people knew that the religious leaders had some pretty strict rules about working on the Sabbath. So the Pharisees talk to the blind man, an ex-blind man, but they don't believe him. Verse 17, the Pharisees again questioned the man who had been blind and demanded, what's your opinion about this man who healed you? The man said, I think he must be a prophet. The Jewish leaders still refused to believe the man had been blind and could now see, so they called his parents. Now, this guy was born blind. He had lived on the streets begging to make a living because at that time, if you were handicapped or crippled in any way, that was the only way you could make a living was by begging. But he has been healed. But his parents, as they come before the Pharisees, they refuse to say any more than that, that this was our son and that now he can see. And they didn't want to say anymore because they were intimidated by the Pharisees. If you said the wrong thing, you would be cast out of the temple, possibly excommunicated from the community. And they didn't want to face the ramifications of upsetting the religious leaders. They were afraid to speak up and utter Jesus's name. But Jesus did heal the blind man. It wasn't just the healing that the Pharisees were skeptical of. They were skeptical of Jesus entirely. They didn't like him. They didn't believe him. They questioned everything about him. In verse 16, it says, Some of the Pharisees said, This man Jesus is not from God, for he is working on the Sabbath. Let's clarify that real quick. The Pharisees took God's law of remembering the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. And then they added to it all sorts of their own laws. Um, They distinguished all the different things that constituted work. And kneading, like K-N-E-A-D, kneading, was one of the things that they considered work. So since Jesus had kneaded the mud, like made mud, he was breaking their law. And then in verse 24, The Pharisees, some of the other Pharisees say, God should get glory for this because we know this man, Jesus, is a sinner. So they're mad at Jesus for getting credit for the healing, A, because if he did it, he had worked on the Sabbath, and B, because God heals, not ordinary sinful people, and they viewed Jesus as an ordinary sinful man. But Jesus wasn't an ordinary sinful man. He was God. And that's the bigger point of this story. Are the claims about Jesus too good to be true? Is he who he says he is? The ex-blind man believed that he was. As we flip through this story, we see a progression. The more that the man encountered Jesus, the more that he knew Jesus, the greater his belief in Jesus. So as this man starts looking above, setting his eyes on Jesus, it totally changes who he believes Jesus is and then his own response to him. So let's 
flip back and look at verse 11. In verse 11, the ex-blind man speaks of Jesus as the man they called Jesus. He recognized that Jesus was a special man, but he wasn't willing to say that he was more than that, and he had no real personal connection to him yet. In verse 17, when the Pharisees question him again, he says, I think he must be a prophet. Now, a prophet is one who's close to God and who brings God's message. So his belief in Jesus was growing. And soon after this, the Pharisees get angry with the ex-blind man and they threw him out of the synagogue. His penalty for being faithful to Jesus was persecution at the hands of the religious leaders. This man had gained his sight, but then he lost everything. It was a really big deal to be thrown out of the synagogue. He had lost his ability to worship. But in verse 35, when Jesus heard what had happened, he found the man and said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? Or do you believe in me? And the man said, Who is he, sir? I want to believe in him. You have seen him, Jesus said, and he is speaking to you. Yes, Lord, I believe, the man said, and he worshiped Jesus. So Jesus went after this ex-blind man. He forged a relationship with him, and the result was belief and then worship. The man who had just lost his freedom to worship God in the synagogue was worshiping God on the street. So who is Jesus to you? That probably depends on how well you know him because the more we know Jesus, the greater he becomes. Is he a man? Is he simply a good man who does good things? Is he a prophet? Do you believe he was a great teacher who revealed things about God and taught us about how to live morally? Or do you believe that he's the son of God? Is the Bible everything, everything in the Bible true? Can you believe in what the Bible says he did, including all of his miracles and his resurrection? Because the more that we know him, the greater he becomes. As we quit looking around us at our circumstances and at things of this world, and we become focused on looking above, he becomes greater to us, and we are driven, just like the ex-blind man, to worship. If we believe that Jesus is God, if we truly believe that, we believe that he died and rose again for our sins, then what is our response? It's obedience. It's telling others about him, and it changes our worship. All right, let's shift our focus to chapter 10. This may possibly be one of my favorite passages in all of scripture. Let's set the landscape. Palestine had very rocky terrain. No sheep grazed without a shepherd. The shepherds were hardworking men <clears throat> who kept the sheep safe from the crags and predators and thieves. Now, in the Old Testament, we saw this idea of God as shepherd. But now in the New Testament, we see the imagery of Jesus as shepherd, and we, his followers, are the flock. Just one more way that we're seeing that Jesus is God, the same God we see in the Old Testament, we see in Jesus in the New Testament. So we'll start reading in verse 1. I tell you the truth, anyone who sneaks over the wall of the sheepfold rather than going through the gate must surely be a thief and a robber. But the one who enters through the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. Now in towns at this time, there would have been a communal sheepfold. 
This was a stone enclosure with one opening that was watched by a gatekeeper. There was more than one flock in this enclosure, but the sheep would only come to the voice of their shepherd. Verse 3, the gatekeeper opens the gate for him, the shepherd, and the sheep recognize his voice and come to him. He calls his own sheep by name and then leads them out. After he has gathered his own flock, he walks ahead of them, and they follow him because they know his voice. They won't follow a stranger. They will run from him because they don't know his voice. Okay, so the shepherd, or Jesus, enters through the gate, calls the sheep, each by name, leads them out, gathers the flock, and then walks ahead of them. Meanwhile, the sheep, that's us, recognize the shepherd's voice, so they come to him, they follow him, and they don't ever follow a stranger. In fact, they run, we should run from a stranger. And when we're talking about stranger, the stranger and the thief in this passage, we're talking, of course, about Satan and all of his minions um, who are the enemies of our soul. Okay, now when I think about this, this is both comforting and convicting to me. It comforts me to know that Jesus knows me. In a sea of other sheep or people, he knows who I am. He calls me by name. He walks ahead of me. But this passage is also convicting because as his sheep, I am to follow him. I'm not to forge my own path. I'm to run away from the stranger. I'm to listen to the voice of the shepherd and go where he leads. But I don't always do that. And I imagine that you also are sometimes a rogue sheep wandering off on your own path and ignoring the voice of the shepherd. Now the shepherds would lead their flocks out to the hillside to feed. And there on the hillside, they had sheepfolds as well. These were different than the community enclosures in town. And in these sheepfolds out on the hillside, um, they could corral the sheep for safety. And then the shepherd would lay across the opening to keep other animals out and the sheep in. So the shepherd became the gate of this sheepfold out um, in the pasture. In verse 7, Jesus goes on, I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me were thieves and robbers. These are false messiahs and false prophets. But the true sheep did not listen to them. Yes, I am the gate. Those who come in through me will be saved. They will come and go freely and will find good pastures. There was a common Hebrew phrase in this time that said, when you can come and go without fear. And this meant that the country was at peace and you can move about safely. So two things here. First, Jesus is the gate. He's the way that we gain access to God. And then when our lives are in God's hands, when we are living in that sheepfold, our worries and our fears disappear and we're able to live in peace when you can come and go without fear. Verse 10, the thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy. All right, pause. <laughs> Let's take a look at the thief's purpose, and I want to look specifically at three Greek words here. First, the thief's purpose is to steal. The word is 
klepto, which we know from kleptomaniac, so stealing, being a thief, taking things that don't belong to you. And that's exactly what that means. It means to steal secretively or by stealth. So that's the first purpose of the thief is to steal us away from the sheepfold. Second, kill. Greek word here is thuo, and it means to slaughter or sacrifice. Just keep that word in mind as we move forward, to slaughter or sacrifice. And then the third word, destroy, is a palumi, and that is a destruction that means to cause someone or something to be completely severed, cut off entirely from what could or should have been. So the thief's purpose in progression is to steal secretively, slaughter or sacrifice us, and then cause us to be completely severed from our connection to the shepherd so that we are cut off entirely from what could or should have been. The thief sneaks into the sheepfold and begins whispering to us. That's how this happens, right? We hear these whispers that come so often from our society when we're looking around us, right? When we're looking to the world, we hear what the thief says to us. But remember what we learned about Satan last week, his very nature is deceit. Everything he speaks, although it sounds appealing, is false. It's all lies. He is the father of lies and there is no truth in him. But he can convince us, doesn't he? Like that if we do this or if we do that, we'd be better off. Or it doesn't hurt to do it just this once. Or people will like you more if you do X, Y, Z, if you post such and such on social media, if you dress this way, if you own this thing. There's all these lies that come to us so subtly. And we follow that whisper because what we're promised or what we're asked to do doesn't sound destructive. He promises exactly what we're looking for, to be known, to be loved, to be worth something to someone. And the thief tries to convince us that life on the outside of the sheepfold is where we'll find all of these things that we want. But you've got to remember that his intent is to lure you away from the light and into the darkness where he will slowly drain the life from you like a maniacal serial killer and then eventually leave you dead and completely cut off from the life that you could have had in Christ. Every time we listen to the thief, we get death. Every time we listen to the thief, we get death. There is no truth in him. Everything he tells us is a lie, and it's always with the intent to kill us. But verse 10 doesn't end there. It goes on and it says, my purpose, this is Jesus talking, is to give them a rich and satisfying life. Now, this isn't talking about eternal life and living with God forever. This rich and satisfying life is lived here and now. The Greek word that's translated rich and satisfying, or in some translations you may see abundant, is parisos, and it means more, greater, excessive, abundant, beyond what is anticipated and exceeding expectation. So Jesus promises us this life here and now that is beyond what we can imagine, that exceeds our expectation. It is excessive and great and abundant. He's promising us spiritual blessings, peace, love, 
joy, goodness, things like that. And he's saying that we're going to have those things like we have never dreamed of before. And that is a far cry from the death and destruction that the thief, Satan, intends. Verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd sacrifices his life for the sheep. Skip to 14. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and they know me just as my father knows me and I know my father. So I sacrifice my life for the sheep. And this knowledge is a deep and abiding knowledge. When Jesus says he knows you like he knows you better than your best friend, better than your husband, better than your mom, Jesus knows you the same way that he knows the Father, he knows you. And isn't it crazy that in spite of his knowledge of us, in spite of the fact that he knows that we're going to fail him, we're going to follow the wrong voice, we're going to forge our own path, it says, so I sacrifice my life for the sheep. He thinks we're worth it. He thinks we're worth the sacrifice. And he loves us so much that he gives that ultimate, ultimate price. So where the thief was sacrificing us for his own pleasure. The good shepherd is willing to risk his life to save his sheep. He didn't think of his own interest. He thought of our interest when he died. His life was sacrificed so that we didn't have to be that sacrifice of the thief. We're going to stop here today because I feel like these two sections are so meaty and you can have a really, really great discussion and just continue to chew on them and consider how we can better look above, how the more we look at Jesus, it changes our perspective of who he is. And the only thing we can do is worship him. And then as we understand him as our good shepherd and as we recognize that those things around us that are luring us out of the pen are only meant to destroy us, it inspires us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. It inspires us to keep running this race and to keep doing what he's called us to do, take our eyes off of the distractions and be obedient. So until next week, Keep looking above.